You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. I want to finish up from the book of Job to begin with. And as we get to the break, we, right before it or right after it, then take time for some questions. Uh, yesterday I talked to you about uh, Redeemer and Redeem and Redemption in order to give you a foundation for the redemptive plan of God. Yesterday I dwelt with the word Redeem. That is foundational. But you will not always see the word redeem on the page while a redemptive plan narrative is being told to you. For example, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be taken into the fiery furnace, the word redeem does not appear in the passage. But that is a demonstration of God reaching into their situation, into their calamity, and delivering them. So many of the stories of God miraculously delivering his people is clearly a demonstration of God redeeming the situation. And so when you come across those, feel free to mark those as part of the redemptive plan. So you don't have to find the word redeem in it. Um, Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, The book of Judges, where the people time and time again repeat the same cycle of uh, they fall into sin, they, they follow other gods, their whole, their whole world collapses on them. Everything goes bad. They cry out to God out of their chaos, and God delivers them. He raises up a judge, leader, deliverer, warrior, and God uses that human judge to get the people out of the situation, even when the word redeem does not occur in those narratives. And I think that cycle happens like eight or nine times. They just keep repeating the same. Each one of those is another demonstration of God redeeming his people out of a bad situation. When the people go into exile, getting them out of exile was an act of redemption. And so uh, the redemptive plan of God is fulfilled in all of those stories in which God does deliver, God does rescue, God does save, both in the natural order, also in the spiritual realm. And so the teaching in the New Testament really does link uh, um, redemption Greek word is apolytrosis, and that is all over the place, to talk about the redemption that Christ does. That's linked to our spiritual salvation, but it's not limited to the spiritual hereafter. It is also rooted in our present reality. And so the redemptive plan is built upon the words 
related to redeem, redeemer, and redemption. But it gets built upon that to include uh, being delivered, being saved, being rescued, uh, being swept up by the hand of God, mighty acts of God. Okay, I just wanted to, to, to elaborate on that. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, Job. You read chapter after chapter of Job's friends and what they had to say. I want to look at the last few chapters that, that allow God to speak. We come to the climax of the book in, verses, in chapters 38 through 42. God speaks out of the storm, breaking the silence, and it's in the fulfillment of what Job has been yearning deeply. Job had hoped that God would vindicate him. Job's friends had expected God to rebuke him, and they're surprised. God simply calls human wisdom into account. They've been circling around, and they have not yet hit upon truth. The Lord powerfully demonstrates over and over again from creation, from its beginning, from its origins, and his care for creation, that wisdom lies within him and him alone. That's where it comes from. In, the, in God's first speech, chapter 38 and 39, God begins with the basic question for, for all human wisdom, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? How dare you? And so it, it, it's, a, it, it's a thunderclap from God of who do you think you are? And the rest is a series of questions about creation intended to give Job and his friends some perspective. Like, where were you when all of this was set in place and carefully watched over? At the end of it, uh, Job properly responds, he's ashamed and he's silent. And so that, that is his best response to uh, what God does in those chapters. The second speech of God, 38 verse 1, recounts God's mighty powers and then challenges Job to demonstrate his own power, as if he could demonstrate some power. Uh, sure, can you defeat the two beasts? Can you manage the behemoth and the leviathan? And th those are Hebrew words. We don't know what those critters were specifically. Behemoth and leviathan. And traditionally, behemoth has been seen as a huge land beast. Leviathan is a huge sea beast. The great issue raised by the book finds its answer in Job's twofold response. First, he admits that he has spoken without understanding. I opened my mouth and I had no basis. I had no understanding. And in Job's second response, his repentance, once he has truly seen Yahweh, he has understanding of Yahweh. And of course, this is what the story intends that others should do as well. The rest of us should also be able to acknowledge, will I speak to God about who he is before I understand God? And will I repent once I really have understanding, once I see him for who he really is? Later when you get to Isaiah, you're going to see Isaiah pick up the same theme. How dare you tell God what to do with, with the work of his hands? Isaiah 45. Um, when Isaiah is ready to give a prophecy about Cyrus, a Medeo Persian, who will be raised up by God to liberate the people, redemptive plan again, to liberate the people and set them free from being exiles. Cyrus, when, when Isaiah prophesies that Cyrus's grandparents had not been born yet, and yet Isaiah uses the boy's name and identifies him as the one who will redeem God's people as an anointed one. 
And in case any of the Jews were to raise their hand and say, wait a minute, you're going to use a non-Jew to help us? Isaiah poses the question, who in the world are you to tell me what to do with the work of my hands? And so Isaiah really is built upon what happens in the last chapters of Job here. Who do you think you are? Do you think you can win an argument with God? Do you think you can box with God? Your arms are not long enough. That's... In fact, there's a play, you know, your, your, arm, your arms are too short to box with God. So, and in the finale, God pronounces his verdict in favor of Job over Job's friends. And then God finally vindicates Job. Job has maintained trust in God whether he received benefit or not. And in the story, he has lost everything. And th- th- there are some that view the book of Job as an analogy that's not rooted in actual events. Others see it as actual events from which we can draw analogy of of example for our lives. I'm of a mind that the events actually heard, actually happened. Um, Some people, they they ponder about Satan showing up in a council with God, and I find that a plausible position because we see that with uh, the book of Revelation, with people gathered around God, uh, elders around the throne, angels around the throne. So I'm of a mind that the report in Job of that heavenly council is an accurate statement of what does happen around. Um, I, I, I don't judge anybody who sees it more as an analogy, but I start with the idea that these are actual people who had actual conversations. And um, so I, I see it as an accurate report of that. That's part of my view of the Bible, that I'm going to trust that it is reporting fact unless there's something in the narrative that indicates that it's a figure of speech or a metaphor or uh, an allegory or typology. Uh, I'll start with saying this is an actual report until it gives me reason to see that it's, it's more symbolic. And then Yahweh blesses Job with a double portion of everything. In chapter 38, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. In these last chapters of Job, we get a clear presentation of who is this God? What is he like? And so there are character traits and attributes of God displayed as God is giving his speech. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it was burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. That is such a vivid expression. You've been down to the ocean, I trust, you stood there and let the waves wash over you. Maybe, you've, maybe you dove into the water. I grew up here in Virginia. Going to Virginia Beach was a normal family trip. And diving into the water. And as a child pondering, why does it stop here? Well, yes, we can examine gravity. We can examine mass of water and displacement of water. All the physics with it. But who wrote the laws of physics? To indicate displacement of water and gravitational, and mass, and, and topography, 
I can understand how it comes apart, but God is the one who put all that in order so that the water stops here. The tide will rise. The tide will go down. Hurricanes will come and there will be a storm surge. But eventually, it settles back basically to the same area. And so God is saying, he's the one who set these things in motion. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Now, this is at a time in which nobody's ever been in a submarine before. Nobody's been in deep water further than you could hold your breath. Now, we've, we've got deep submersion submarines. They can go miles below the surface. But still, we have to have the equipment. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea where underneath the ocean floor, there, is, there are springs of water flow? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me, come on, come on, tell me, if you know this. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? And in the ancient world, they came up with all these mythologies to explain you know, where the winds come from, uh, you know, where the lightning starts. You know, the whole Norse god, Thor, god of thunder stuff. That was an attempt to try to explain where this lightning thunder comes from. And God is saying, what is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed? Who who can say? What, What human knows that? Who put wisdom in the heart or gave the mind understanding? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the dust hardens like cast metal and the clouds of dirt stick together? Can you pull in Leviathan with a hook or tie his tongue down with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he beg you for mercy or speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you so that you can take him as a slave forever? Can you play with him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? What are the largest, shall I say, animals? Yeah, what are the largest animals known to man? Whale. Hmm? Whale. Except they're, okay, whale is not a fish. A whale is still a mammal, right? Uh, there have been in very deep water detection, not so much visually but by sonic, of fish as large as or larger than the largest whale. Except apparently the way they're designed is that they do not rise to the surface because they, they're built for pressure. And if they rise up too high to the surface their body expands to, it's possible that if if they expand too much, they'll explode because they're made to be a mile below the surface. Do they have a name? Hmm? Do they have a name for it? I'm sure they do. I read an article about it. It's like they've never been captured because they don't come as high as submarines can go low. They dwell at, at at a level of pressure where submarines cannot go. Because there's a limit to how far down submarines can go. Uh, we're talking in the, the, with the Marianas Trench of the Pacific Ocean, which is the deep. So there are creatures not yet studied and examined. And uh, could, it, could, could that have been what God was talking about by, by Leviathan? 
whatever. There, God made all of that stuff from the tiniest little microcosm, from, from a cork itself. So, Job, uh, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. That's a key statement at the end of the book because it was in the early verses of the book where Satan shows up in the counsel of the Lord in order to accuse, in order to thwart the plan of God. And so the idea of God's plan will not be thwarted. Now, God is like a commander of a huge army. Well, let me restate that. God is the heavenly commander of the heavenly army. And every commander has to be strategic. He's got a mission. He's, he's got a, a military mission, but he might adjust his strategy based upon the movement of the enemy. And the enemy has been moving and thwarting and twisting and turning and lying and deceiving ever since the opening chapter of Job. You ask, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. And so he admits that. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life, even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Now, if those numbers seem huge, go back and read uh, some of the, the reports of Abraham, uh, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Esau. Uh, when, when Jacob and Esau are, are, ma- are having their confrontation and Jacob is sending animals to, to appease his brother, thousands. And so having that many in the ancient world was possible. It meant you were very wealthy because you had huge assets. They, these were considered assets. They, they wouldn't have money in the bank or they wouldn't have investment in the stock market. But this is their asset. To have 14,000 sheep, that's a lot of assets. You could buy and sell and trade and eat and be clothed. And he gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. And he named the first daughter Jemima, the second daughter Keziah, the third daughter Karen Habuk. In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job. And their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Yes! There are those occurrences in the ancient patriarchal male-dominated society in which some men had this sense to take care of their daughter and leave her in the will so that she got a part of what his sons got. And so it's mentioned here in the book of Job to let us know Job realized the blessing he had in sons and in daughters. Leaving him in the will. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to see that. Not all men were that astute. Three daughters. Um, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job. Uh, I, I used to not think much of those names. Yeah, they're old ancient Bible names, but people don't use those names anymore. Um, Maureen and I have been married 44 years. We raised three children, Rachel, Jesse, and Benjamin. We call him BJ. Um, Rachel is married to Mark. They have one child, Juliet. Uh, Jesse is married to Sarah. They have three kids. Uh, BJ is married to Kara. They have five kids. Um, Jesse was the first one to get married. 
he and Sarah met in college, and they married while he was in seminary. And um, they wanted to start a family, and they tried. And uh, they had a miscarriage. And they tried again and had another miscarriage. And then they both went to doctors to see if there was something wrong with either or both of them. They were married seven years with no child and repeatedly having problems getting pregnant. When they got pregnant, they had a daughter. And that would be our oldest of nine grandchildren. Her name is Keziah. Because Jesse and Sarah had recently read the book of Job, and they were really blessed by how a family could lose a great deal, and then God give them something. And so one of the daughters was named Keziah in the last part of his life as a blessing and a beautiful girl. And so our oldest grandchild, uh, standing at the top there, and she's, she's quick to remind her uh, eight younger cousins uh, and siblings that she is the first among them. And so uh, th- this was last Christmas. Uh, there's uh, Keziah. Next to her is Ian, who's four months younger. That's BJ's son. And Annie and Parker and Jack. And on the bottom is uh, Mark, Rachel, and their daughter, Juliet. In the middle is uh, David being held by Sarah. Next to her is our son, Jesse. And I'm down in the bottom there, but behind me is BJ and Kara and one of their daughters, Catherine, and Mimi uh, is my wife, Maureen. Uh, I'm Papa. My wife is Mimi, and Mimi is holding Evie. Uh, I, I share this with you to, to say that in life, sometimes there are uh, disappointments, uh, there's loss, and there is recovery. There's redemption. God stepping in and bringing a blessing. Uh, he doesn't owe us a blessing. We cannot demand a blessing. I don't feel I'm entitled to a blessing, but I got to tell you, I'm blessed. Beyond any expectation I had, to look at that and know those are my people. Uh, to the second and third generation. And uh, uh, Maureen and I pray that we will live long enough to see our grandchildren find their future and get married and have kids. And so that, that is our prayer. While I have not lost what Job lost uh, within my life, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. And I believe in the resurrection body, I'll have two good eyes. And so I'll get to experience what you've been experiencing of depth perception. How my heart yearns within me. Because I believe in the redemption, I believe in the resurrection. A biblical worldview is is built upon that. A belief that there is a God who's able to raise the dead. And his story, the Bible is the story of his plan to bring that about in a big way. Now, behind the scenes of the story of Job is that issue of evil, of wicked. Genesis 3.1 begins with, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. And it, it plants that, that doubt. Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done all of this, 
Cursed are you above all the livestock, all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, that's narrative. That's, that's the story reported. And it's easy for us to look at it and come up with questions. Why would God put a serpent there? Why would, create, why would God create a creature who would lie and deceive and accuse and distort and kill and hurt and do wicked things? Why would God do that? Those are the questions that we might ask if we lose sight of, of who God is. In Job 1.7, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Oh, like God was taken off guard? But that's the question. Satan answered the Lord from, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Joseph, Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God and shuns evil. He's a man who fears God and shuns evil. And ever since then, with his friends, you know, you, all this bad has come upon you because you've done something bad, obviously. And Job is like, I, 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 I can't think of something immediately that I've done bad, so what do I do? Pain and suffering, evil and wickedness. Um, back around 300 B.C., a fellow named Epicurus came up with a riddle. Uh, here's how it gets translated. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? If so, then he is not all-powerful, omnipotent. Is he able to prevent will, uh, evil but he's not willing to prevent it? Then he is malevolent, meaning he wishes to do evil. Is he both able and willing? If so, then from where does evil come? If he is neither able nor willing, then why do you call him God? And this is called the riddle of Epicurus. It's been repeated in one way or another. It's been adapted. But, but th- this, is, this is seen as the ancient presentation that philosophers have expanded on for a couple thousand years now. Is God really willing to prevent evil? But he's not able. Then he's really not all-powerful. Is he able to do it, but he really doesn't want to? Then he, he wishes to do evil. He's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? If so, then where does evil come from? Because if he's, if he's able to get rid of it and willing to get rid of it, why does he let it happen? And this is where a lot of people say, I, I can't believe in a God like that. If he's able to do it, willing to do it, but doesn't do it, I don't want, I don't want your God. Is he neither able nor willing? Then he's not a God. He's just a figment of your imagination. So philosophers refer to the problem of evil. Uh, you can go to VCU and you, you can take a philosophy course on the problem of evil. Um, with the question of how to reconcile the existence of evil with, with the belief in an all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing deity. And it's easy for us as Christians, when we're doing evangelism and doing the life of, of the Christian... To talk about God is all-powerful, God is all-good, and God is all-knowing. And people will listen to that and say, okay, if your God is all-powerful and all-good and all-knowing, how do you explain evil? And, and you need to be able to reply somehow. It's not an easy, quick reply. The problem may be described either as experiential or theoretical. Experiential of life 
or theoretical in the head. The experiential problem is the difficulty in believing in a concept of a loving God when confronted by suffering or evil in the real world, such as epidemics or pandemics or wars or murder or rape or terror attacks when innocent children and women and men and loved ones become a victim. The train station in Ukraine had 50 civilians in it, and they all died. The problem of evil is also a theoretical one, usually described and studied by religion scholars in two varieties, the logical problem and the evidential problem. And let me be honest with you, giving a survey of this is not my favorite task of Origins Week, but I believe it sets you up to understand people that you want to impact with all of the stuff you learn from the rest of the Bible, because the problem of evil is here. We can't ignore it. We must reply, and we must, in season and out of season, we must give a reason for the things we believe in. Do you believe in a loving God? Do you believe in a powerful God? If you do, people are going to wonder, well, what's your God do about evil? What are you going to do about evil? So, in the riddle of Epicurus, If the riddle is valid, and I'm not saying it is, but if it is valid, then the logical argument from evil is as follows. If an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omniscient God exists, and that's the fancy word for all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing deity, then evil does not exist. But it looks to me like there's evil in the world. Therefore, An all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing deity does not exist. You see that? So some people will use the, the, the existence of evil in the world as proof that God does not exist. Therefore, those people can disprove the existence of God and just blow you out of the water. Therefore, what you believe is, is nonsense because there's evil in the world. And how can you believe in God? Because you're telling me that you have an all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing deity, except there's evil here. Therefore, You're believing in a farce. Yes, bamboo. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't ask this. Maybe I should just wait for you. Um, What is evil? Like, we use the word. Yeah. It poses in the question, do you know what evil is? <laughs> yep. You remember I hit upon the uh, the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim in Genesis six. Turn turn to Genesis six, please. And I need somebody to read verse five. Genesis six five. In my Bible, it's on page fourteen. <laughs> okay. Six five out loud. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can we keep going? No. Okay. Uh, Hannah. I'm going to ask Bamboo to read that again and every time there's a modifier... Whether an adjective or an adverb modifier, 
Would, would you shout it out as soon as he reads it? Okay. Okay. It, right. She, so, she, so, so Hannah will interrupt you briefly while you read it. You ready? All right. Okay, go for it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was the only was only evil continually. Let's remind me of definitions. Would like great be? Yes. Great continually. Every? Y- yes. Yep. Only. Only, yeah. Now, uh, God is looking upon humanity from his heavenly perch and he sees that their wickedness has become great. The, the Hebrew word is ra, which means evil or wicked in the sense of what they're doing is totally out of line with God's plan. What they're doing violates devotion. What they're doing is not what God wants them to be doing. Chapter 6 doesn't give detail yet, but the raw term shows up later when there is idolatry, when there is adultery, when there is injustice, when there is murder, when there is lying, false testimony, you know, the, the major commandments. And the, the indication here, the Lord looked upon the earth and he saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the heart, every uh, inclination, um, is that the word yours used, inclination or leaning? Uh, probably leaning. Leaning. It could uh, have been inclination. Either one. Okay. Is the same. Every intention. Intention. There you go. Uh, the, the Hebrew expression is yetzer hara, inclination toward evil. Um, uh, the opposite of yetzer is being upright. Every inclination, every leaning, every inclination, every uh, um, intent was toward being bent being bent, being bent until it breaks. That's the, picto, the, the pictographic expression, Yetzir Hara, the inclination toward evil, the bentness toward wickedness. Wick, how do you define wickedness? Uh, well, you describe it. Where... A man has decided he's a farmer and he's going to participate in the religion of the Canaanites so that his field gets blessed, his animals reproduce, and his wife gets pregnant. So he takes his 11-year-old daughter with him so that she can be part of his offering and sacrifice. And he forces her to be used in a sexual ritual with another farmer. That is evil. So the narrative describes events like that. Manasseh, the king, took his oldest son, bound him up, and had him put on an altar with a fire right behind it so his, his son, when alive, would roll into the fire as a living, breathing human sacrifice. King Manasseh did that, according to Jeremiah. 
that is wicked. Okay, so the, the narrative describes events that can be classified as that's evil, that's wicked. So it's like um, it's it's hard to define the word, but but I know it when I read one of those stories. Sure. Yeah, and maybe what I, maybe the reason I ask is because when I think about like evil, it's like, am I evil? It's like I ask that question. You know, like maybe most of the things I do are good. Mm-hmm. Some of the things I do are bad. So am I good or am I evil? You know, like and so going to this question, I couldn't help but notice that it doesn't really like doesn't posit the idea that. God makes good things mm-hmm. or good creatures that go bad or that are capable of evil. There's a difference between classifying something as evil or capable of evil. Maybe that was the distinction I was okay. asking you about. Mm-hmm. When you get to the epistles, when you get to Romans, uh, the first couple of chapters are indicating that we, we have it in us to be bent we have it in us to do terrible, horrible things. What is required for us to not be bent is an outside force stronger than we are. Mm-hmm. Jesus calls it the paraclete, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the, the, the presence of God in us by his spirit that makes us have the strength to straighten up. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, on our own, we will bend and bend and bend and be broken. And the enemy, Satan, that's, that, that's his strategy, is to bend us to his will. It requires the Holy Spirit in us on a regular, uh, on a regular encounter of relationship for us not to bend toward wicked. Now, I don't think we're all tempted by the same things. I think there's, you know, all the temptations are there. I, I think each of us has our own weakness. We, we might share some weaknesses, of where we're bent. Uh, as a kid, my, one of my older sisters introduced me to shoplifting, and I got really good at it. <laughs> I, I mean it. I, I could walk out of the store with with tons of candy and stuff from the store, and <laughs> and not get caught. I just it was just, but today I have I I'm not tempted to steal anything. Like that. And when I was 11 and 12 and 13, man, sticky fingers. I've never been tempted to set a building on fire. But I've talked to people where that's a, that's a huge temptation. And I know adults, they shoplift on a regular basis and they go to church on Sunday and then confess that they struggle with that particular temptation. That, that's not, I'm not tempted. I know where I am tempted. And I'm not here to confess to you my specific sins, but each of us need to be aware of where we easily bend toward evil, toward wickedness, toward, toward choices that violate God's plan for us. Now, we are not required to keep the law of Moses to get saved, but the law of Moses is a teacher. 613 things that we ought to know about stuff you should do and stuff you shouldn't do doing of many of those things would be, in God's eyes, wicked or evil. Now, it doesn't mean that the New Covenant doesn't have any conditions. It does. Okay, The law of Moses has 613 conditions, stipulations to be held. The New Testament doesn't have that many, but it does have some. Love one another. Bear with one another. 
Correct one another. Teach one another. Help one another. Be kind to one another. Okay? Uh, honor God. Love God. Love neighbor. Those are conditions of the covenant. We're supposed to keep those conditions. When we don't keep those conditions, our behavior is evil. Now, uh, Romans emphasizes that um, uh, we, we have that. First John emphasizes we're born with it. Um, and, and theologians argue today about um, total depravity, uh, sinful nature, um, and, and I, I don't, I'm not here to get into debate. We have sin. We're born with sin. We have a sin nature within us. Does it mean we're always going to sin? No. Does it mean we can ever not sin? Uh, that's a tough, a tough one to tell. What we should do is daily choose. I'm going to die to myself because myself is, is selfish and live to him. And through the day, ask the Spirit, eh, make me strong, keep me, keep me moving, and keep me focused. God exists. But there's a problem with the evidence. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. God is all-knowing. An all-powerful being has the power to prevent that evil from coming into existence. An all-good being would want to prevent all evils, I would think. An all-knowing being knows every way in which evils can come into the existence and knows every way in which those evils could be prevented. A being who knows every way in which an evil can come into existence, who is able to prevent that evil from coming into existence, and who wants to do so, would prevent the existence of that evil. If there exists an all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing God, then no evil exists. However, there's evidence that evil exists. So there's a logical contradiction. And I've sat with people who've talked about this, and it's, it's, they just twirl in circles. And I'm like, flush the toilet eventually, please. <laughs> There are typically four categories of evil. Chaos, things like flood, fire, shipwreck, wild animals attacking, war, drought, famine, plague, and epidemics. Okay, so th- th- these, are the cl- these are the classical categories that philosophers have used and theologians have used to talk about evil. There's human sin, like Cain, Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the Amorites and, and their sins, murder, rape, theft, deception acts of sin that humans commit against each other. And then there's the evil of satanic and demonic forces. The Garden of Eden, Golgotha. I I would say many acts of war. Um, I, I studied a lot about World War II and the evil acts that were committed by the Nazis. And I see behind that much demonic because many of them were doing it because of their cult perspective of the, the old Germanic religions. And they were so. Uh, and then another category is suffering. Uh, Job suffering. People getting ill. People getting diseases. People getting injured. People losing precious things to them. So these, these are categories of evil, chaos, human sin satanic and demonic forces, and suffering in the world. Scripture does not treat evil philosophically, but practically. God is practical because he's the good shepherd. According to the Bible, the experience of evil is something that God understands and God acknowledges. God doesn't deny evil. 
God's willingness to grant us the freedom of making our own choices also allows for the possibility of moral evil. Because God decided to to create us with choice, it includes the choice to do wrong. So did God create evil? That's not the right question. He created us. He created us with the potential of making choices. Moral evil leads to physical evil. Even so, God has often acted to soften the blows that evil and suffering land on humanity. He also provided the one and only means to ultimately make all wrongs right. One day, God's plan to defeat and destroy evil will be fully complete. The kingdom is already here but not yet fully realized. The kingdom is already but not yet fully. And here's my problem. I live in two kingdoms at the same time. I live in the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of my Lord and and Savior because that kingdom started on the cross, except it's not yet fully realized. It will get fully realized. It's like we're living in the foretaste. We're living in the, the epic prologue of the kingdom. It is here. Jesus said the kingdom is here, but not yet fully. When the full kingdom is realized, when he comes back, All this other stuff will be ended. But until then, we're stuck, living in two kingdoms at the same time, in which evil is able to exist where God is in us. The Bible makes it clear that we are truly free. Then, we are free to choose something other than God's will. And in my life, I have. From time to time, I made choices that were other than God's choice for me or God's plan for me. That is, we can choose moral evil, Scripture points out that there are consequences for defying the will of God. Personal consequences, communal, physical, and spiritual. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Genesis 2, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Ouch. Well, that's, that's the story. Some people demand an answer to these questions. Where did evil come from? Did God create evil? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. That's what it says. He created humans with choice. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Jezebel, you, me. Can we do evil? Yeah. Can we think evil? Yeah. God created us. Yes. With choice. The Lord God saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Yetzer Hara is the leaning toward wickedness, that, that, that bentness, that inclination. Our best response to evil and suffering is this John 16 33. Uh, Jesus was. was uh, giving them revelation about his end, about him being uh, captured and arrested and beaten and killed, and that the Son of Man would return. He follows that by saying, I've told you all these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you're going to have, and this word thlipsis gets translated a number of different ways. Thlipsis. Thlipsis can mean Trouble, tribulation, trial, calamity, distress, <laughs> suffering. And he says, 
in this world, you're going to have it. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Do you hear that? Don't ever wander far from that truth. In this world, you're going to face calamity. But, but be strong. I've overcome the world. The world will throw thlipsis at you. But Jesus has overcome the world. Romans 12 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oh, so that means that you can overcome evil with good. Now, don't get all cavalier or caught up or arrogant about that, okay? It's not the goodness that's in you. It's the goodness of God in you. It's you allowing the good God to operate through you. Overcome the evil around you with the presence of God, which is good, in you. And, and step into the world. And that's not some pep talk. That's not some motivational speech. That's put boots on the ground, go into the world. God's response to evil is this, Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day he must be raised to life. Mark 10. Even the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but in order to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A redemption price. A ransom. Luke 22. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, at no point did Jesus say, uh, Evil does not exist. He never said that. In fact, he says, In this world, you're going to face trouble. You're going to face crisis. You're going to face calamity. You're going to get hurt. Somebody's, some wicked person is going to want to stomp the life and breath out of you. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now, we may die in the world spreading the gospel. That's okay. He's overcome the world and he raises the dead. He raises the dead. So, forgiveness is the biblical answer to the problem of evil. Forgiveness is the biblical response to evil. Now, forgiveness is different from condemnation. It releases the condemned from punishment. Forgiveness is also different from excusing evil. It acknowledges that there is wrong to be made right. It admits evil is, and then let's make it right. The basis of our forgiveness is the cross. It is the intersection of God's perfect moral character, His love, His power, His knowledge, since he chose to take our penalty upon himself, all suffering and evil can be overcome. According to the Bible, the evil we experience in this life has already been defeated. We're just living with the residual effect. Everyone has access to that victory. Even a person who has faced suffering and disease may die from their disease but, be fret, but their spirit be set free because of the forgiveness offered because of the cross. And for many of us, the first verse of Scripture we were ever taught to memorize is John 3.16. But when you memorize John 3.16, don't stop there. 
For God loved the world in such a manner that he gave his one unique son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one unique son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. There is Jesus' response to evil. Is there evil in the world? Yeah. Did God create evil? God created the world. And in so doing, he gave us the opportunity to choose and we can choose evil. So, you need a worldview that has a place to recognize evil is and God is. One day this world of evil will come to an end. Remember God's name? Is, be, Yahweh, I am. And his promise is he will never stop being eternal, ancient of days, rock of all ages. Our worldview has to contain that, that evil will be brought to an end, wickedness will be brought to an end, this world will be brought to an end, but God and those under his care will not come to an end. If your worldview includes that, then you're on the way to having a biblical worldview. Your worldview, um, in, in, in our context, what we mean by that is the lens through which you experience and interpret the world around you, which therefore influences the way you choose to live. And th- there have traditionally been four fundamental questions that form the basis of your worldview. A question of origin. Where do I come from? A question of meaning. Why am I here on earth? What's my purpose? A question of morality. How should I live? What code do I live by? And destiny. What happens? Where am I going? What's the future hold for me and for us? those, Those are guiding questions to inform a worldview. Where did I come from? Why am I here? How should I live? And where am I going? And as you read the Bible... Be attentive to the answers because these are answered repeatedly. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's my mission? What's, what's the point of all of us? And what's the point of each of us? How should I live? My, my, my code of conduct, my standards of life, the choices I make. Is it right to do this and wrong to do that? Where am I going? Where am I headed? What's going to happen to us? No. There are a lot of different ways of of answering those questions. Um, There's relativism, where all truth is relative to whoever has that truth. Uh, Humanism, we as human beings are autonomous and we can make progress in this world on our own and we don't need a deity. So, you know, that's why many people, they step away from organized religion because, you know, humans are, we're pretty ingenious. and we can make our way without a God. There's dualism. Uh, 
all good and evil are fundamental realities in the universe, but they're not unified within, and so they're dual forces at work against each other. That's the basis of Star Wars, you know, the dark side and the force, really. And, and I love those stories. I, they're, they're great. They're ancient, but it is dualism. And the idea is to win more people to one side or the other, and the more people you've got on one side, it, it weighs the scale in that direction so that the dark side can overwhelm the force. No, no, and the Jedi are saying, no, let's, let's follow the force and get more people on that side to overwhelm the dark side. And, and, that, that's, and the plot of the Star Wars movie is that the key to the force is this child that they just found who has the force with him, who winds up being Darth Vader. <laughs> so they wanted, they wanted him on one side or the other because he weighed more than anybody else in the dualism. Uh, there's polytheism, where many gods are real, and layers of, of gods, and multiple management layers of gods. And then there's agnostic, agnostic, agnosticism. I need to lubricate my lips. <laughs> there are deities out there, but we cannot truly know them. And that's agnosticism. That's an acknowledgement that there are forces, but those forces, those deities... Those gods haven't bothered to let us know what they're like, and that, that's, that's agnosticism. Atheism is denying that any deity exists and that people who follow a deity are really stupid because how can you believe in things that don't exist? Uh, henotheism is the worship of one deity while not denying the existence of other gods. And regrettably, many church people are actually henotheists. Because to be a monotheist is kind of arrogant or narrow-minded. <laughs> because a monotheist says there's only one deity and there are no other deities. And any pretend deity is a deception. Now, that is narrow. That is Yahweh. Uh, what I read yesterday, repeatedly, uh, Isaiah especially, Deuteronomy especially. Uh, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and there is no other. And then more than 20 times in Isaiah, Yahweh speaks out and says, Yahweh is my name, and there is no other. I will not tolerate any other. There is no other. I am the only one. That's monotheism. And these are all worldviews. These are all ways to answer the questions. Uh, the questions of where do I come from? Why am I here? How should I live? Where am I going? Those, those questions can be answered in every one of those worldviews, but the answers are quite different. Uh, how did we get here? Well, there was a big bang, and then there were molecules, and the molecules were oozing around in the muck and the mud and, and formed uh, amoeba and protozoa and, and became little slithering things in the water, and those slithering things became you know fish-like and amphibious-like and at one point, they grew little extensions and crawled up on the mud, and the, they evolved legs, and the legs evolved toes, and the extensions evolved fingers. And so we evolved. And so evolution is, is our origin. And so our purpose is to evolve. And that's our future, to evolve. And so uh, for a lot of people, that, that's how they answer it. So that's a worldview. And each worldview answers the questions in, in their own context. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, but just a couple of them. Relativism takes many forms. 
The basic idea is that truth is not the same for all of us. Truth is not the same for all of us. Pursue your own truth and be true to yourself. Truth is relative to the individual. Therefore, anything Jesus said may be true for one person, but not true for the next. So Jesus is all right for you. But for me, I'm, I'm thinking on a different plane, different level. And whatever you speak becomes your truth. Therefore, speak it a lot. Get other people to repeat you. And your truth becomes your reality. That sounds like the news. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, um, in humanism, uh, human beings are the ultimate measure of truth. We humans create our own truth. We humans create our own morality. We decide what is right and wrong. We, we, we find our meaning on an individual level. Humanism, when divorced from deity, claims that humanity can create its own values and meaning and purpose on a societal level. And it is up to humanity to save itself. And so we must save the world by our ingenuity, by our mechanism, by our laws. The war of the worldviews. Um, how do we know what we know? Why do we believe what we be- Why do we believe what we believe? And a, a DBS is the right place to ask those questions. I got to tell you that it can be scary. How do you know what you know? And why do you believe what you believe? All I have seen in my life has convinced me there is a God, even though my eyes have never seen God. The evidence of changed lives around me, the evidence of my own life being changed, knowing that I, I, could, I would not have followed this path. I could not have done what has happened in my life. There had to be something else. And that becomes a foundational testimony to myself that there's a God. How do humans comprehend stuff? What are your primary sources of information about God, about your world, or just about everything else? And then people say, well, there's illumination. I, something's been revealed to me. Other people, they say, uh, it's reason. I, I have a logical, rational approach to life. Others, they just sort of feel it. They, they intuit life. It's all about intuition, what, what I sense in my gut. For others, it's transactional reason. It's, it's having a, a rationale that's exchanged for other things. And for others, it's just downright mystical. It's, all, it's, it's just, you know, I, I have a concept. Uh, I, I have a poetic interpretation of the world. And so it's mystical meditation. And if you've never heard of these, these approaches, it, it, it's a simplification of the complexities of human history. Illumination, for example, by the Holy Spirit, where truth is revealed, not discovered. I did not discover the Garden of Eden. It was revealed to me in the Bible. Now, because I believe there is a God in heaven, and I believe that he wants to reveal himself to me, I have found the Bible as an adequate revelation of what God wants me to know. I cannot prove that. You hear me? I can't prove God. I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not the one called into court to prove that God is guilty of creating the world. That's what a prosecutor would have to do, was to prove a case. But I do go to court 
I get summoned up to the witness stand. I sit in the witness chair and I bear testimony. Not my job to prove it. It's job, just my job to bear testimony and to say, this is what I see. This is what I hear. This is what I know. And answer the questions that are put to me. That I, I believe truth has been revealed. I believe in biblical supernaturalism. I trust the Bible to be true. If scripture reveals it, then it must be so. Now, I'm careful about the interpretation. I care a lot about what did it mean, so I don't make it mean something that it doesn't. There are others, they don't think the truth is revealed. They think it's, it's reasoned. Rational, rationalism, depending on human reason, deny the need for divine revelation, analysis of historical facts, extreme confidence in science and human judgment. I like science. Science is good, but not an extreme confidence in science, especially when science says there can't be a God. Or science says the world is 8 billion years old. Well, I disagree with that. Then there's intuition, um, self-basis. It's felt rather than thought. Uh, natural elitism over external truth. Where some people, they, they actually think that they're better than others because they have intuition, or what they interpret as intuition, and, and they think they have superior knowledge. If, if, you, if you knew the things I knew, how many times do I hear politicians say that? And, and that's, that's shameful to act that elite. I'm picking on politicians, okay, because they're fair game. Uh, <laughs> but with intuition, there are no absolutes. There are those who feel above the law. A lot of criminals are intuitive in the sense of they do what they feel they have the right to do. They don't feel bound by a morality from somebody else because that, that cuts in on their intuition their internal senses, no absolutes. They believe what they want to believe because it just feels right. And then there's transactional reason. Uh, emphasize paradox and reality. Recognize we, we live in paradoxes. Uh, we have existence, but we have no future. And because of paradox, there's contradiction that proves that there is no, no deity. In a world of paradox, there can't be a God. The paradox of evil and God. And then finally, there's mystical meditation. It denies objective value of truth. Things are mystically known, transcended, fantasy, imagination. A lot of people like that, they wind up in the arts, music. I grew up listening to the Beatles. I know that's prior to your generation, but I was eight years old, eight years old when they were on Ed Sullivan on a Sunday night. And it, it rocked our world. And I've listened to their music since then. I grew up on their songs. As an adult, I've gone back to seriously listen to their lyrics. Mystical meditation. Wonderful poetry. I understand their worldview. Much of what they wrote was from that perspective. And, and uh, wonderful love songs. Romance. The thing is, the guys writing those lyrics were horrible in their relationships. Because they were mystics. Um, every, oh, John Lennon especially, but, but that's <laughs> <laughs> wonderful poets, great mystics, terrible husbands, and terrible fathers. I mean, they were miserable husbands and fathers, um, but, but they denied objective value of truth. Things are mystically known. 
we transcend, we have fantasy, we have imagination. Uh, So if you're not accustomed to, to these categories, it breaks down the question of how do we know what we know, why do we believe what we believe, where do we come from and where are we going, and how should I live? Um, you'll be out hiking in the mountains and you'll encounter somebody and strike up a conversation with them. And I think within a few sentences, you should have a good sense of where they're coming from to understand they don't share your foundation of worldview. Of, that never happens. Oh, never happens. No, no. Like every, Absolutely not. On every hike, you encounter somebody and they already believe in illumination from a power outside of this planet that invaded time and space in flesh in the incarnation and have illumined us. It's like you're reading my mind. Right. You're intuiting my mind. So this is important if, if you have a conversation with somebody and you ask, if, if you ask them, do you believe in God? Now, uh, then it comes down to, do you believe in the God of your mysticism? Do you believe in the God of your transactional reasoning? Do you believe in the God of who guides your intuition or the God of reason? And I know scientists, I know physicists who believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And they're happy to tell me many areas of science are religion. Many conclusions of science are religion and require faith to believe in them. And so for some people, religion, science is their religion. And for some people, music is their religion. For some people, sports is their religion, is their God. So, so I, I, I give this to you so that uh, you be processing uh, where you came from, where you're going, why you're here, and how you should live. And my challenge to you is that, is that you should let the Scripture be that revelation that illumines you to answer those questions. But we are surrounded by people who have embraced others, other different ways of answering the questions, other different worldviews, and, and continue to shape and form your worldview in consistency with the Scripture. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that is a huge worldview statement. Everything you got in in you, everything that makes you up as a human being. And I don't think Jesus was saying, we are composed of four components. No, it's a Hebraic way of using components to try to capture different aspects, different facets of what we are. With everything you feel, you know, the the whole heart thing, with everything that motivates you, your soul, everything of your strength, your, 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 your facilities, your abilities to move in this world, and everything of your thoughts, your processes, your reason. God gave us reason. He gave us rationale, the ability to critically evaluate the world around us. God never says, unplug your brain. God never says, I need stupid worshipers. He never says that. He says, I I need worshipers who will worship me by means of spirit and truth. And truth is reasoned. It's evaluated. It's examined. It's tested. And it's preserved. So love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself.
Okay, so that, that's, uh, that's my presentation on worldview. <laughs> I hope it helps. Sometimes it's like uh, grabbing sand and trying to hold it in your hand. It's, it's like, it's like ah, because worldview is, is, is not rigid. It, it's in flux. It flows. And, and we, we, as we grow, need to continue to process for ourselves, where did I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? How should I live? What should my behavior be like? And, and know the answer to those reasons, those questions, okay? It's not yet 4.30. Not going to stop yet. Okay. The Bible was written with a variety of, of literary genres, different styles. When, when I start my day in the morning, I don't do my devotions first. My brain is not awake. My, my eyes are, are still kind of fuzzy. So I start with a cup of coffee and the comics on my laptop. I've, I've, got, I've chosen my favorite comics, the funny papers, online. I, I, we don't get a hard copy newspaper anymore. We used to do that. I liked sitting with the newspaper in my hand and reading the comics over coffee. And once my brain, once I'd laughed a few times, got the oxygen flowing, then my brain was, was functioning enough where I could, I could devote to God. I could read scripture and pray, okay? So I don't begin there. I, I work my way up to that. I read the comics. I like wordplay. I, I, I like the twist at the end. And, and com, comedy, at least funny paper comedy, is a, a play on words, a, a sight gag, a, a, a cute drawing that catches you off guard. And that, that's what good comedy is. It catches you by surprise. So I, I read the comics. And then I read hard news. I, I want to know what happened, events, not commentary, not, not editorial opinion. I, I want information of what happened in the world while I was asleep. And so I look for hard news. And then I read the, the obituaries. I, I'm, I, I, I read to see, has anybody that I know died in the last couple of days? And that's not important to you now, I guess, but for me... I see a lot of people in the obituaries that I know or know about, or I need to be aware in case I need to call somebody. That, that you know, um, and I've been in Virginia a long time, and I know people all over the place. So I read the obituaries, and I, I glance over the sports to see you know who's playing, what games are coming up. Just I, I don't, I'm not a, a slave to that, but I read that. Reading the different types of literature of news in the morning, from comics to hard news. I do read some opinion. I read some blogs. I've got some favorite bloggers that I follow. Uh, I want to know what's happening in the church, in the world. Um, and, I, and I receive email from World Vision and from YWAM and missionaries that I know, so I'm, I'm subscribed to that. You know, uh, I, I, I get regular reports from the bases, uh, YWAM base in Ensenada and Tijuana, Mexico, because I'm, I'm really involved in what they're doing. So I read that. And, and then my brain, different parts of my brain function differently as I read the different types of literature from comics to hard news to blogs to what's happening in the church, what's happening in the world, opinion about stuff that's, that's happening in the world. Same thing we need to do when we, when we read the Bible, okay? The, there's historical narrative. That's the, those are the hard facts. This event happened, this person said this, and then they moved on. It's, it's informational. Uh, law, covenant stipulations, code, do this, don't do that. Poetry, 
uh, poetry to me is similar to comics because you have to read it with your mind open and uh, see the unexpected, uh, see, see the, the uh, sometimes the mystical, uh, the, the, the artistic. Uh, poetry, You've, you, you listen to the lyrics of a song and you give it some wiggle room because the lyrics to a song, the, the, the lines to the poem are not to be taken as rigid fact. So I don't read the poetic parts of the Bible the way I read the historical narrative of the Bible. You, you, you follow that? Because there's going to be symbolism in one place and, and fact-finding in the other. Uh, wisdom literature, uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, okay? You have to read it as a statement of expression of wisdom which might carry with it irony. Uh, prophecy has to be read as prophetic literature. Who is God? What is he like? What does he expect of us? What's he going to do? And it has to be read through the lens of how does prophecy work in the Bible. And then gospel. Okay, gospel is that interesting mix of historical narrative with teaching and miracle. This, it's, it's, a, it's a style, it's a genre all of its own. And we have four of them in our Bible. And each of them has their own style. And then there's epistle, letters. Epistles are letters written on the occasion of a problem. <laughs> Epistles are letters written on the occasion. So they're called occasional letters. And they were written because they needed to be written to reply to or to correct someone or, or to call somebody into account. Written on the occasion of a problem, a, a need. Um, and then the Apocalypse, the last book. Uh, there is a style... The final book is very similar. To, the book of Revelation is similar to Daniel and Ezekiel because they're all, they all have very graphic symbolism within the prophecy, more than regular prophecy. So it, it's, it's a different style. So each of those genres in the Bible have their own set of guidelines on how to get the most out of it and recognize I'm operating a different part of my brain here. Is this literal or figurative? Is the whole thing figurative, or do I need to be alert to literal, literal, literal figure of speech, literal, literal metaphor, literal, literal symbolism? And so uh, as you're reading, um, it's helpful to be aware not all of it's written like a newspaper or not like the first page of a newspaper. Like 40% of the Old Testament is narrative. A narrative would be purposeful stories retelling historical events of the past. God's story becomes our story. I think, for the most part, the narrative stories in the Bible actually happen. The events actually occurred. Whether it was um, Abraham walking the land and discovering what God had promised to him, or Abraham negotiating with a Hittite landowner to buy real estate. I think those stories are true. Or uh, a false prophet riding a donkey and the donkey talks. I think the narrative is accurate. I, I, I believe the donkey talked, okay? Um, I, I, I'm embracing that, that part of the narrative. I don't think that's symbolic, okay? Um, so 40% of the Old Testament is made up of these narratives. The other 60% is other types, other genres, okay? Books that are entirely narrative, Okay, or the vast majority of that book is historical narrative. Genesis, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, 
Jonah and Haggai, or th- those books are majority narrative. Other books have substantial narrative with a bunch of other stuff. Exodus, Numbers, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Job, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts have a lot of narrative and then a lot of other things in them. Um, so, why don't we take a break and then I'll, I'll give you some pointers about narrative after we do some questions. So, let's take a break, come back, and if you have questions, let's do those first, okay? Okay.